Good morning, everybody. Wow, I heard my name. My name is Jezer Garcia, so I'm one of the pastors here at Hannaford. But I'm so glad you came here today. If you're a visitor with us, thank you so much for coming. Uh, Pastor John asked me to speak today, so um, I feel like it's always a privilege to be up here and speak to you. So we're on a series on Colossians, and, and, and I really like that. I've been learning a lot with Pastor John the last few weeks. Um, I was thinking about a little bit um, about this and um, what influenced my thoughts, you know, and, and there's someone that did this research, so it's by Dr. Bruce Davis, and here's what he came up with. According to him, so in his research, we have about between 50 to 70,000 things a day, 50 to 70 thinks a day. So we think 50 to, I don't know, depending on your personality, some people are a little bit different on that. But um, I think about that a lot because I, in my brain, there's something called the nothing box in my brain. It's the time that I'm sitting in front of the TV that my wife asks me, are you, are you doing okay? Are you, are you all right? And, and then I say, yeah, there's nothing going on. You know, I can't tell her nothing. So it's really, there's nothing in my brain, and I'm not thinking about anything. And for her to understand that, it's really hard, because she's like, how can you not be thinking of something? You know, you're not worried. It's like, no, just looking at TV, it's my nothing box. And usually when I'm on my nothing box, there is something on the nothing box. You know, what I'm doing is I'm on my phone. Sometimes I'm looking at Amazon of things that I don't need to buy. And you're just thinking about things that you do not want to buy. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing for this. And I, and I was like, what are, what are we thinking? If there's 50 to 70,000 things a day. So what are we thinking? What, what's the thoughts that we're, we're having captivating? What is the driving force of our thoughts? You know, and the way I decided to do it, I was like, yeah, that's a good question. So I went on my phone because we're consumed by our phone, right, by technology, and I looked at my history to see what I'm looking at. I'm like, oh my goodness, everything is about buying stuff. It's about stuff, really. Or news about things that the world is falling apart, and then, and then I get worried, and then I get on the spiral about all the worries of, of the world, right? So, and then maybe it's something for you guys to start thinking about. If we are thinking 50 to 70,000 thinks a day, what are you thinking? What's the thoughts that we have? You know, maybe you'll be like me, you're just always looking for stuff from this world, or you're consumed by, by news, and, and that gives you the same idea like it does to me, where I'm always worried about things. So that's one, one area of my life that I decided not to do as much, is not to look in the news so much, because I, I constantly being influenced by that when I'm looking to news. I feel, I feel worry, you know, on edge, even get my... my my sense of, of how I treat others change as well. So I'm trying to work on that. So many thoughts. That's a lot of thoughts to think. So recent years in social media, we have what we call, and I don't know if you heard this term, but it's a new term called influencers. 
Uh, it's the influencers. This is something that happens in social media. And the way they, they describe those, um, they define influencers are people that spend a lot of time on social media, and they usually have a channel in a social media, and they have a reputation or a knowledge or expertise in some, some topic. And, and the way their influences measure is by how many followers they have or how many clicks they get in their post, and that's what it is. Um, there's this guy, and, and I was researching a little bit about and thinking about the most influence, influencers of our society today, and there are so many names that came up, but one I thought was a little bit funny in a way, okay? So there's this guy that, there's a channel on social media called the Twitch, okay? Twitch is a channel, if you don't know what that is, it's a place where professional video gamers, like kids, uh, people that play video game professionally, and a lot of people follow them, and what they do on those channels, they actually watch these guys playing video game. So they're not playing video game, they were watching kids playing video game, and they interact with them through social media, like they talk to them, okay? So there's this guy that his name is Ninja, okay? I talked to some, some kids are like, yeah, Ninja! So I asked in youth group Tuesday, I was like, hey, do you guys know Ninja? And they all said, oh yeah, heck yeah, you know? So this guy has a net worth of $40 million, okay? And what he does, he plays this game called Fortnite, which is an online game, and then and you get to interact with him, okay? He's a 31-year-old, and, and he, he interacts with the kids while he's playing the video game and talking to the kids, okay? And they're posting questions to him, and it's fascinating because I got to see one of those. I was like, I want to see what this guy's talking about. So here it is. So they're playing this game, Fortnite. If you don't know, it's a game of shooting game. Okay? So this guy, so here it is, the guy on the, on the screen, right? He's running with the gun. And then some kids are like, hey, there's a kid in my school that's bullying me. What should I do? And he's like, oh, man, don't worry about it. You're better than this. And shoots the guy. And then he keeps running, and then another kid asks, he's like, so, you know, my mom is just giving me a hard time because I spend a lot of time in video game. Guy who makes a ton of money on that says, oh, don't worry about it. Listen to your mom. This is Ninja, okay? Now, I'm just giving you an example. I know it's kind of silly, but what does that have to do with us? It's interesting that maybe you say, oh, I'm not influenced by that. I'm not directly influenced by that and to be honest a lot of things he has to say was good there's some moral things that he had to say was good but what alarmed me on this is here's a guy who's influencing some ways a generation because a lot of those kids are middle school kids who are listening to him and asking for advice about life right what a power is given to this guy it made me think that maybe you're sitting here and say, well, that doesn't influence me. That's not the case. But in some way, indirectly, we're influenced by those influencers. Because you can't remove yourself from a world that is building up upon that. And the way a lot of those are influencing us is through the way they interact. And it's changing the way we see relationships. It's changing the way we're job environment, and you can experience some of that. Maybe you're not influenced by, but you have people around you that works with you, 
that is changing the job environments that you are in because those influencers that are coming into your life. The way we see marriage. Uh, a couple months ago, I talked a little bit about that, how many people are influencing marriage in our society. And maybe you are not being influenced, but a lot of people are. And we're living in this world. The way we raise kids, how we relate to our parents, how we see sexuality. It's tremendous how influencers are influencing our world. And whatever allows you into your life, even though you're like me, you have the nothing box, and you see it on your phone, somewhere or the other, you'll be influenced by the world. And whatever that is, you have to answer that. What is influencing you? Whatever you allow into your life will affect the way you view anything. Everything. You know, uh, when I was about 10 years old, I watched this. Uh, maybe I shared this in youth group before. Um, uh, it was me and my friends, we decided to hang out together. I was about 10 years old. And then we decided to watch this movie, okay? Uh, I didn't ask my mom, so I was in a friend's house. And the name of the movie was Children of the Corn. So it was a 1980s movie, and it's a horror movie. So I'm watching this movie, and, you know, and first of all, my friend was like, you know, you want to fit in? And he's like, hey, you want to watch this? Heck yeah, let's do it. So I'm watching this movie, and then, you know, back in the 80s where your parents allow you to do anything, right? So I'm sitting there, 10-year-old, watching a movie, a horror movie, uh, with another 10-year-old. So we're watching this, and then it gets late, and I'm freaking out, Okay. And then I have to go home, and then I had this long alley to get to my house, and it's dark. And then to go into my house, there's a cornfield, not joking, <laughs> where they're all killing those kids. So, and I have a narrow path. I had to run, and sometimes you hear animals, you know, crows and other things. And I remember standing in front of that cornfield, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to go through this. So what I did, I came back, and I told my friend, and I said, hey, I'm freaking out. I watched that movie. It's your fault. Now you have to walk me home. <laughs> Which all your pride goes away when you're at 10 telling that you're freaking out. And my friend laughed, and he said, yeah, sure, I'll take you. So we would both go in, and then, so we go in, and then we ran through the corn, the corn uh, plantation, and we get to the end, and he's like, oh, shoot, now I have to go back by myself. <laughs> and then I go in and say, well, okay, so 10-year-olds so trying to define life, right? So, okay, all right, we'll do this. So maybe I should walk back with you. So I walk back with him. And then when I get to the end, I was like, wait, but I have to go back to the cornfield. So I'm not joking. We did that about three times <laughs> until finally I said, you know what, maybe we should... I should just go to your house, and I'll call my mom, and I'll sleep at your house. He said, sure, let's do that. So we walk through the corn, go to his house, and then we're sitting there, and I remember not sleeping one minute because everything I saw, it reminded me of that movie. You know, I see a little bit of a shadow, and I would think it was something scary that was going to get me, and it was freaking me out, and I think for two years I didn't sleep well. I'm not joking. He influenced my view and everything. 
So if you say that sometimes you do things here and there and the way you see your world is like, okay, I can dismiss that. It's not going to affect the way I do things. You're wrong. If you surround yourself with things that influence you, surround your things that maybe are not right, in some way or the other is going to come out. It's going to affect the way you see the world. And again, the question is, what's influencing you? What is the biggest influence that you have in your life, the way you see the world? So Pastor John spent a little bit of time talking about this series. And the idea of the Colossians church is that as a church that is started with Christ, and along the way, they lost the meaning of living a Christian life the way it's supposed to. So a lot of what we've been talking about is doctrine. Things how you go about life. And I love this because in Colossians 2, verse 13, 14, I would like you to read with me. And this is the idea for where we started to have a conversation today about influence. What influence you? What should influence you? It says this, Colossians 2, verse 13 to 14. When you were dead in your sins and as in circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our all sins, having canceled the change of our legal indebtedness, which stood up against us and condemned us. He has taken away, nailing to the cross. So it's definition of a true Christian. So, He's assuming in here in this verse that at one point in your life you surrendered to Christ and you gave your life to him. And in his death on a cross, and then when he raised, you rose with him as well. You are by definition a Christian, a follower of Christ. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, you also died with him and rose again. But Paul, after that, he gives a very practical direction. What a person like you and me who made a decision to follow Christ, how we should view our lives on earth. How you should proceed your walk with him. How you should see the world after you made a decision to follow Christ. This passage has been challenging me so much. It's one of the first passages that I have spoke on it. And I have to say, which is low expectation for me, okay? I used that passage when I was in seminary, and I fail in class preaching this passage. So hopefully today I won't be a fail on that. So here's what's said. Low expectation. Oh. This is God's word, okay? Colossians 3, verse 1 to 4 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, you became a Christian. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who's your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Is that an amazing verse? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing passage, for your word speaking to us this morning. And I pray that you open our minds and your hearts to learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, he start off, we'll go again in parts. Okay, we're going to break this passage a little bit. So verse 1 says, since then. So here it is. He's talking about, remember I just read a verse in Colossians talking about that at one point you die with Christ and you rose again. You are a believer. You are a follower of Christ. So since then, because you made a decision to be a follower of Christ, you have been raised with Christ. In other words, you became a citizen of heaven. A citizen of heaven. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Paul's saying, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, the life of the Son of God has come into you, and then you raise again, you raise with Christ when he rose and won against, had victory over death. It's such a powerful passage. This is the miracle of salvation. If this is the first time that you're hearing this, I encourage you to make a decision to follow Christ. There's, it's a miracle of the salvation. We're dead because our sins. The Bible says that we're dead because our sins. And now we have salvation through Jesus Christ. We are raised with him. You are now a new creation. You belong to him. Not because we're cute. Not because we're nice people. Not because you come to church every day, every week. But because Romans 5 says this, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. By his grace. Not because you're nice. By faith. Not by your own efforts. And for that reason, we become citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. And we're going to spend some time talking about what that means to us, being a citizen of heaven. You know, I understand a little bit about citizenship. Um, and and I, I came in 2004 as an immigrant. My wife grew up in Montana, and I was in Brazil. We met there. I went to seminary there, and while we were there, I met uh, her, and then we, we got married, and then we came to U.S. And before I came, I, I had to go through a process of what they call immigration status before I come to U.S. When you do that, so you have to do some work. You know, you pay some money, you do some work, and you do interviews, and they do some tests before you come. And I remember the first test that I have, even this is for me to become an immigrant. Um, so you go to agents, and then someone asks you to go in this little room, and there is a person talking to you, and the first question they ask you is, are you going to commit any kind of a brutal uh, crime against Asians? That, that was the question they asked me. I have no idea still why. But they asked that. It's like, are you going to commit any acts of terrorists, uh, terrorism? Any acts of terrorism against people? I'm like, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. And they're like, this, this is serious. We're asking. I was like, no. Which I'm thinking, who would say, like, oh, yeah, even if you're doing so, and that way they asked me two questions, right? And then they asked something about my father-in-law. I was like, who is Randy? And, and I said, well, that's my father-in-law. Okay, well, welcome. All right. I don't know why people are climbing the wall. I mean, it's, uh, it was easy. But anyways, sorry. Sorry, I apologize. So, 
Anyways, it was a lot of work, and a serious note, it was a lot of work to do, but the, the question area was amazing, it was so easy, so I stick in the country for like five years, so I was here, I was like, hey, I love this country, and then they said, okay, you can apply to citizenship, you can become a citizen of this country, and I'm like, I love that, so what I did, I did, you know, you do a bunch of other tests, and they have to, they ask you to study the Constitution of the United States, and then you have to learn about history, and you know how the ways of government, and there's so many things that happen, and you need to know a lot about the United States, and then you go to the date of interview, and you're ready for, it's like, ask me any questions, I know everything about this country, and you're so excited, and then when I get there, they ask me this, sir, you come in this room, person very like, you know, serious with the tie, have a seat. And I'm nervous, so, and then he asked me, who's your favorite president of the United States? I'm like, uh, Lincoln, you know, I said, okay, can you write that down? Are you serious? He's like, sir, this is a serious thing, you got to write it down? Okay, I write it down. It's like, we are testing your comprehension, okay? So in the second question, he was like, so who is the first president of the United States? You know, and I answer, George Washington, you know. All right, welcome to the country. I'm like, what? I mean, that was so much work to get there, but I was so excited, right? So I became an American citizen, and you go, and you have this ceremony, and then they invite everybody, and it was beautiful. I was so excited to be part of this country, but there's something that happened when I became a citizen. You know, what, you hear me talking, and then you say, obviously, he's not from here. You know, people are constantly like, what? What did you say? Uh, what? You know? So then I go back to Brazil, because I've been there, far from there for 20 years. So, and then they tell me, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I can't hear you. I can't understand you. You have an American accent. So I go back to U.S., I have a Brazilian accent. And I go back to Brazil, I have an American accent. So I feel like I don't belong. I sit in the airport. I'm like, I don't even know what door to go, the U.S. or Brazil. So I'm sitting right in the middle. But this is an idea. The reason I'm explaining this to you is because I understand not belonging to anywhere. And the Bible tells us, that we're not citizens of the United States or Brazil or whatever. We're citizens of heaven. This place here is just a transitional place. We're here just for a little bit. Not for very long. Just for a little bit. We're citizens of heaven. We belong to God. Here is not home. But a lot of times we live in our lives as this is it. This is our lives. And if that's true to you, that you feel like yourself, you are citizens of heaven. Yes, you're an American citizen, but beyond that, you are citizens of heaven. Now, how should you live? How should I live? And the Bible says, set your hearts. If you made a decision to follow Christ, set your hearts on things from above. And some versions would say, seek. Seek heaven. And this word doesn't mean just uh, think about it, heaven. It, it, it describes, the, the way it describes the word seek is relentlessly pursue with everything that you have, with passion. Relentlessly search for something like it's the last thing that you want to have. And I can understand that. 
you can understand that there's so many things that you're passionate about it. And the way we describe that is an obsession or a craving. It's craving something. Obsession for something. And that's the deep thought that Paul is trying to help us to understand. When you think about heaven, crave heaven with everything that you have. Have obsession about it. But what does that mean? Set your hearts, seek on things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Have such obsession, crave heaven where Christ is. And where is this place? It's heaven. It's heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And I'll explain what that means. There's nine times in the Bible that tells us that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. It means he's a place of authority, of power. Also the idea that he's sitting on the right hand of God as his job is finished. He's done everything for us. There's nothing else. You know, a priest back in the Old Testament, he had no place to sit. He was constantly doing the work. He's constantly walking around. He's constantly doing the work. He's constantly doing sacrifices. But the Bible says that this is over. When he died on a cross, it was over. It was done. No more sacrifice. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And the Bible says that he's praying for us. His job is finished. Nothing else. So we have to be looking at him in that way. What Paul is saying to us in this verse is for us to crave heaven because life is very short. James chapter 4, verse 14 says this, Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. And then vanishes. I understand that growing up in Brazil, we always had a fog in the morning. And I remember driving in that fog or walking on that fog. And I just remember, this is awful. But then all of a sudden, it goes away. And then you're walking with the sunshine and you even forget about it. That's the description that James gives about our lives on earth. And here's the problem. Life is very short, but we spend so much time thinking about the surroundings, the things about this life, uh, how to make more and more money, how to live a very successful life, and how to, what is going on with uh, the news nowadays. And we get overwhelmed with that, but the idea is heaven is so much bigger, but we spend so much time investing on this little short time. I did an illustration with the youth before where I did, I got a tape like this, and I was trying to describe to them heaven. And I don't know if you see, this is a, there is a silver tape on the top of the tape. And it says this is the illustration of our life. Maybe we live about 70, 80 years of life. And this is right here is our life on the little tip. And this is heaven. Mark? 
I mean, I can go on and on and on and on and on, but we focus on that little silver dot. And we spend so much time worrying about the things of this life, then we forgot, we forget about eternity, that we're going to spend forever and ever with God. I remember as a kid, I thought about heaven like this. I thought it was like, man, I don't want that. It was like we're walking around with matching robes. You know, we'll be in heaven with matching robes. Everybody's looking with robes. And, and I'm like, I don't want that, you know, because that was kind of a, uh, the picture I have in my mind. And then I started to read the Bible and understand there's a place of joy that would never end. You know, the pain that you wake up in the morning and you're like, what happened? That your body's falling apart or people are getting sick or there's cancer in the world and everything's falling apart. None of that. In a place that would be worshiping God forever and getting to know His presence forever. And that is heaven. I have a friend called Frank and he was the guy, the most positive person I ever met in my life. Very heavenly uh, thinker. And he always would remind us about and, you know, when we were kids, we were in our uh, 18, 19, and he would talk to us about ministry, and he would always would end with this, hallelujah. He always would say that. And we asked him, why you say always hallelujah? It was like, to remind you of heaven. We were 18. I'm 45 now, and life goes so fast. He passed away this week, and I know he's with God saying Hallelujah. Come, Lord. Heaven is forever, and it's a long time compared to the things of this world, but we still get consumed by this world. Poe repeats the same thought on verse 2. It's the same idea, but it now he uses a comparison. And here's what he says. Set your minds. the same idea, right? To seek. But now he uses a comparison. Set your minds on things above, not... On earthly things. Not on earthly things. Set your minds. Keep setting. Program your mind, your thoughts. It's kind of like the idea on the radio. When you drive, you press one button and it goes to the station you want it. And that's what Paul is saying. Set your minds. It doesn't have to be an exercise to think about heaven. After you do that so many times and you have an approach and you see heaven. And you live your life as heaven is here. Your mind's going to be set on that. It will be programmed to that. That's the idea. But sometimes we get distracted by the things of this world. We have to set our minds, program our minds, set our minds on heaven, not on earthly things. And why this is so important to us because we get so much, we get so distracted. I just described it to you. I'm sitting on my nothing box, but still I'm thinking about something. Even though I deny and say, no, nah, there's nothing here. But I'm thinking of something. We get so distracted and we let ourselves be influenced by the world. And we don't even notice. Very often, we don't even notice. The things will distract us from heaven, from Jesus. But we need to set our minds on heaven. And the idea is to redirect your mind. When it says set your minds on heaven, 
It's the idea of redirect your thinking. There's a lot of research on this. Uh, when I used to work with youth, uh, we heard about this idea of hardwiring, and some teachers or some people that are in that area will understand what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a process of hardwiring. When a kid is little and he grows up and then he becomes a teenager, there's a process that happens in his brain or her brain. It's called hardwiring. It means everything they learn as a little kid growing up is going to hardwire as a fact in their brain. And then when they become teenagers, they challenge that. That's why a lot of times parents, they have a hard time with rebellious attitude. is because they're challenging those thoughts. It's the idea of hardwiring. They were trying to hardwire those thoughts. And then for years, they thought that once it's done, so meaning if you have a trauma when you're little and then you grow up and then you become an adult, there's no way around. And they're changing that idea. There's a recent uh, discovery that they talk about it that's called the neuroplasticity. What that means is the idea that if you take your thoughts captive and you stop a particular activity in your life that's bad and you replace with another activity or a thought pattern, a new pathway is learned, but it only works if you replace it with something good. Right? And often in church, we hear, don't do those things, don't do those things, don't do this, don't do that. But we never talk about being a new creation to replace with something new. And this is the idea of renewing a mind, is redirect your mind, teach your mind to think about heaven. Paul talks about that in Romans 12. It's the idea, they use this word called metanoia, which means change of mind. So the research is talking about that idea recent, but Paul wrote this a long time ago. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says this, do not conform. This is beautiful. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Redirect. And how? How can you redirect your mind, your thoughts, of all the things that are happening in your life, all the bad thoughts that you have, all the influence that you have from this world. How you have this idea of metanoia, he gives here to us the idea, by renewing of your mind, and that is through the scriptures, through the word of God. There is no other way. It's not corrupted. It's the Bible. So you have to follow God's word, to have your mind renewed, that you can have heavenly thoughts. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Good, pleasing, and perfect will. We heard that passage so many times. But oftentimes we want to replace our addictions, our concerns, with nothing. And guess what? Another thing is going to come in. Another addiction is going to come in. You have to replace with God's word. You have to do that. Paul is telling us that we have to have a heavenly approach about how we live our lives. We have to set our minds on heaven and having a heavenly approach about how we live our lives. The view of heaven is better than anything else. It's better than uh, the influence of the world through media, through the White House, whoever is in there. Or Fox News or CNN or TikTok, whatever you want to call it. Heaven is better. Heaven is better. Because the idea of heaven 
is you get excited about things that are heavenly. You get excited when someone comes to Christ. It's important to you to have an attitude where people come to Christ, and that for you is extremely important. Let's look at the events of this world with Jesus' perspective, which is countercultural today. How we do that, how we can find that. We look through the Bible. Be kind when people are not kind to you. Be gentle, be loving, encourage others. Don't be negative. Don't find yourself talking about people, but be encouraging. It's countercultural. I have to learn myself that. I have to remind myself to have this heavenly approach about life. Be generous with my time towards others. Think of heaven. Think of heaven. Good or bad. Whatever is going on in your life. Good or bad. I want to remind you that life is so short and temporary. I remember as a kid living in this house that was falling apart. And, and I remember seeing, I was probably five, six. is the earliest memory I remember. And I can see water coming through when it was raining. The wind would come through the, the walls. And it must like broke my dad's heart to say that. But I remember saying, Dad, how long more we're going to live in this house? And I remember today what my dad said. He says, just few more days. Just few more days. Whatever is going on in your life, if there's death, if there's whatever it's going on, I'll tell you this, it is temporary. It is it shall pass. Whatever is going on in your life, don't lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, For this light, momentary affliction, whatever is affecting your view, it's a very small comparison to heaven. So this life is momentary affliction. is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not into things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transcendent, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Set your mind on things above. Have a heavenly approach. Think of heaven, not unearthly things. Not unearthly things. Where is your heart? Is that on things of this world? I'll finish with verse 3 and 4. It says this, For you die and your life now is hidden. So you have security in heaven. Your life is hidden. Why do you worry about? Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. In John chapter 10, he gives a better description of that. It says, I give them, this is Jesus saying, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We are secure in heaven. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I am, and I and the Father are one. God of heaven is telling us that we are secure in Him. What are we worried about? 
Why this short period of time makes us worry so much about it when we belong to him. And you know something about being a citizen of heaven? It's people are going to notice your approach, how you see life, and that's going to be extremely attractive. And you know what the real tragedy is? When they can't tell the difference. The real tragedy of being a citizen of heaven, you go to places and you tell your friend, hey, I'm a Christian. And then he will say, no, you're not. That's a tragedy. If there's no difference between you and a non-Christian, we got a problem. We have to have a heavenly approach. We have to figure out how to live a life on this world and don't let the world influence us, but influence the world by the power of God and the way we see life. It will change everything. You change the way you see life. It changes the way you see problems. It changes the way you see persecution. It changes the way you see fairness. It changes your perspective. Let's live a life in this earth as citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We humble before you. I myself, I want to confess that I haven't been living a life of a citizen of heaven. There's times that I wish I'd done different. I would say something different. I love a little bit harder. Help us as Christians, as followers of Christ, to have the same attitude as you, who had everything to gain and gave up everything. You sacrificed yourself on the cross for our sins. Allow us to have the same attitude, to do everything with the heavenly approach. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.